Welcome everyone to episode 126, Cancer Environment. I'm Dr. Kiki here with Dr. Dalen James, and this is the Stem Cell Podcast. All right, everyone, welcome back to the Stem Cell Podcast brought to you by Stem Cell Technologies. Thank you so much for tuning in. Dalen, how's it going over there? I'm going to take this moment to shout out to my oldest son. Turned nine just now. Can you believe it? Milestone. Oh, nine. Nine, it's not really anything. I mean, it's not double digits. I guess it's the last one before double digits. But it's just remarkable to me because he just doesn't like me anymore. He just doesn't <laughs> see me as, he sees me as the enemy already. There we go. So this is for you, son. All right. The guy who makes you stop playing Fortnite. The a-hole. That's right. Oh, the children who changed our lives forever. Ten yeah. years ago, you were a different person, Daylon. I, I don't know if I was better or worse. I might have been happier. <laughs> I was less reviled. <laughs> less reviled, for sure. My son is still seven. He still loves me. Um, I am not looking forward to the change that I know uh, will come. Ah, but happy birthday to your boy. That is wonderful. All right. Let's get down to business. Make sure you check us out at stemcellpodcast.com. You can not only subscribe to our newsletter there, but you will also find all of our past episodes and other great resources. And of course, follow us on social media. On Twitter, we are at Stem Cell Podcast, Stem Cell Podcast on Facebook, and you can subscribe to us on iTunes and Stitcher. Get all the new episodes automatically downloaded to your device. That's amazing, right? Okay, well... We have a great show today. In addition to the latest science and stem cell news, we have another, yet another wonderful guest for you today. We are speaking with Dr. Louis Vermeulen, a stem cell researcher. Hmm. What if I said he was like, you know, a dog <laughs> researcher? No, it's a stem cell researcher. He studies how the cellular environment affects cancer stem cells in the gut, in the colon. So that's going to be an informative and wonderful interview later on. But first, Dalen, are you ready? What are we doing? First, Kiki, before we get to the gut thing, we're going to do uh, what we usually do. Stem cell technologies would like to let listeners know about Another one of their weekly science newsletters. This one's really appropriate to the guest today. Intestinal cell news. Just when you thought they can't have like a thymus cell news, right? Yeah, they do. They got one on the thymus too. <laughs> this free weekly newsletter curates all the well, intestinal cell news. I mean, it curates all the latest research, industry news, events, jobs, and policy news impacting the field of intestinal cell biology. So if you came here, to listen to Dr. Vermoulin, one of the foremost researchers on the intestine and colorectal cancer in the world, maybe you should subscribe to Intestinal Cell News to keep current with the rest of the field and save yourself some time. www.intestinalcellnews.com. Kiki, mm. get her done. All right, let's talk about genes. And I don't mean the genes that you wear on your legs. Let's talk about the genes inside of our cells. How do you define a gene, Dalen? Do you have a working definition? I like mine distressed and <laughs> slim fit. <laughs> oh, my goodness. You're a youngster at heart, aren't you? 
<laughs> you spend like the two hundred fifty dollars on this distress. No, <laughs> on a pair of jeans. I, I don't. I stop. I'm all a Levi's guy now. Stretchy, <laughs> stretchy, so they don't rip, so I can wear them forever. But if That's I had to right. define a jean, I'd say like a packet of information, maybe. I don't know. Well, see, that's the thing. People are still trying to really define what a gene is. And so if you can't really define what a gene is, how can you know how many of them there are in the human genome? And so this is an important point that researchers have been trying to get across. Uh, historically, the ori- or at least originally, the definition of a gene was RNA that is coding to produce a protein. However, as we have discovered, there is lots of stuff within the genome that is RNA that's non-coding, that doesn't necessarily lead to proteins, but that has very important activity within the cell, within changing activation of other genes, going on to have various functions. And so should these segments of the genome be included in the gene count? So Published back in August in BMC Biology, but recently written up in Science News Online is uh, an article about this, how researchers have been trying to figure out, specifically Stephen Salzberg, most recently, he's a biostatistician at Johns Hopkins University, and he headed up a new count that does take into account all of these RNA genes. And so Ages ago, the range of, of gene counts in our genome ranged from about 19,901 to a new count of 21,306. And this new count is based on these DNA genes. And so looking at the, the various genes in and around, they've now counted 25,525 coding genes, and that includes 18,484 long non-coding RNA segments. And there's more of these non-coding segments than protein-coding ones, according to this new count. The count does not include microRNAs or other small RNAs that are involved, but the new total, according to Salzburg, comes to... 46,831 genes, if you accept his definition of what a gene is these days, which is, you know, as we're scientists, probably up for a lot of debate. I love the debate because, although at some point, I guess it's semantic, but for me, I only care about the genes that make proteins because I just think, I know the links do stuff, the long non-coding. But I would guess that a lot of those long non-coding, like there are 18,000 of them, a lot of them is just the detritus from which evolution creates coding genes. You know, they need like the clay and they accidentally become something and then it gets coded. So, or it's the leftovers. I'm sure a lot of them do something, but the protein ones are real tangible. You know, you can spec them. They become a machine that's doing something. So I like the protein coding genes. No disrespect to the links. People out there. No disrespect. Yes. And I'm sure you're not alone in your idea. Now, let's talk about moving on to my next study. Let's talk about these protein coding genes and let's talk about which ones we actually study. So, you know, the the old count is around 19,000 of these coding genes within the human genome. Did you know that there are only about 2,000? of those 19,000 that research focuses on. 
even though we had the Human Genome Project, and we know all of these genes now, research still focuses on genes that were facilitated, and our understanding started to be facilitated of them during the 80s and 90s, the 1980s and 1990s, before the Human Genome Project. A new study that was out in PLOS Biology this last week found that, according to co-author Thomas Stoger, a systems biologist at Northwestern University, that PhD students and postdocs who work on less studied genes have a 50% lower chance of becoming a group leader because it's harder for them to get funding. And they found that scientists who chose to study obscure genes were less likely to receive funding and were thus inevitably forced out of the field. And so this bias in genes that we are finding, it's historical, yet it's being continued through our funding patterns. It's like, oh, we already know about these genes. These genes have an effect. Uh, We know that they're involved somehow, so let's keep studying them. As opposed to this slow percolation outwards into some 17,000 additional genes that are being relatively (laughs) ignored that could have very important influences on our health. That's amazing. You know, I can say firsthand, I've always wondered this because I'll get back this like microarray data, right? Which is every gene and I'll stack it, manipulate it to look at full change and whatever. And then I'll look down a list and I'll comb down it, and my wife will be sitting next to me. She'll be like, what are you even looking at? And I'll say to myself, what am I even looking at? And what I'll tell you what I'm looking at, I'm looking for something that jumps out at me. And you know what jumps out at me? Stuff I already know. Yep. So all those unknowns, like the SCX4, you know, 128 annotation, that's like, oh, well, that's probably just some housekeeping junk. But SOX4, well, let's have a party. That must be relevant. So you're right. It's like a confirmation bias scenario where you're just, you know, you're finding what you're looking for and you're only looking for things you've already seen. It's crazy. Yeah. So this is a very interesting study because they have really taken a systematic approach to understand why we have this bias in our studies of the human genome and very particular genes. And so they use machine learning methods and looking at a bunch of data, they can predict the number of publications on individual genes, the year of the first publication about them, and the extent of funding by the National Institute of Health and the existence of related medical drugs. And so the Biomedical research is just guided by a very small handful, and there's a lot of, as you say, longstanding conventions, funding obstacles to neglect thousands of genes that could be very important. I didn't think of that funding thing. It's obvious, too. You're right. Mm-hmm. I mean, you can't get funded if you're you know, studying some channel that no one's ever heard of. Exactly. Yet surprises come out of these relatively yeah. unknown channels. Very interesting stuff. Another interesting study published very recently. Researchers, let's see, what was this? this? Was published in the Journal of Neuroscience and is a brain study looking at learning and memory and obesity. But of course, this is a study that was looked at in rodents. In mice, the researchers gave them a high fat diet or a regular diet, the high fat diet. After 12 weeks, led the mice to weigh almost 40% more than the mice fed on standard mouse chow. Looking at behavioral tests, they confirmed, neuroscientist Elizabeth Gould of Princeton University and her colleagues, they confirmed the mice 
weren't really good at escaping mazes that were obese. Uh, They couldn't remember objects' location as well as those mice of normal weight. And so they went and looked at the brain. And on nerve cells, they found reduced dendritic spine density. And these dendritic spines are very important for receiving signals. These are where the synapses take place, right? So there's fewer dendritic spines, especially in the hippocampus, which is important for learning and memory. They took it a step further and discovered that this is linked to activity of microglia. They discovered that there are higher numbers of active microglia in within these synapses, these dendrites of the obese mice, compared with mice of normal weights. And these microglia were acting to phagocytose, to eat up the dendritic spines. They were, they were more active in, in actively destroying the connections between nerve cells. And they were able to confirm that when they used pharmacological inhibition of the microglia, that it reversed some of that dendritic spine loss and cognitive degradation. So blocking the microglia helped those those dendrites maintain their connections. Learning and memory got better even without the obesity. So the question now is, how is this obesity to brain link taking place? What's going on with the fat deposition? Is is it that the animals, I mean, there are huge questions here. What is the link? Okay, you've got more obese animals with worse cognitive abilities, and there's something happening with the immune cells in the brain to make this happen. But why? What's the link? If I didn't see all that mechanism, I might suggest that maybe they're just hangry. Right. And we've discussed that. Right. Right. Or is it, you know, they've they've gained weight and so they're not as active. Maybe they're just not running as much. And we know that activity, I mean, this is going to lead to depression Maybe, you know, maybe they're not active. The brain, the connections aren't happening as much. And it's maybe a feedback cycle. There's a lot. There's a lot there. A lot can go wrong in that system. Yeah. It seems like there's a lot more to be figured out in this system. But it's a it's an interesting, interesting thing. And while we know that mice do not tell us necessarily what's happening in the human system, it is interesting to look at. Finally, antibiotics. We need more antibiotics, right? We know that drug-resistant antibiotic resistance is growing within bacterial species. And one particular group of bacteria, the gram-negative bacteria, are the ones that seem to be really developing that antibiotic resistance most quickly. And so research has been really focused on trying to find a new class of antibiotics, a new drug, various ways to get into those gram-negative bacteria and destroy them. And so there has not been in over 50 years a new class of antibiotic approved for use against gram-negative bacteria. It's a really long time. However, researchers recently have reported a new class of compound from natural products. These are arlomycins. These arlomycins were used to obtain a compound, which they are calling G0775, and it is a molecule with potent broad-spectrum activity against gram-negative bacteria. The compound inhibits the essential bacterial type 1 signal peptidase, 
which is a new antibiotic target through what they are calling an unprecedented molecular mechanism. It circumvents existing antibiotic resistance mechanisms and retains activity against contemporary multi-drug resistant gram-negative clinical isolates in vitro and in several in vivo infection models, which is what is really interesting here. And so they're demonstrating that these arlomycin, which this is the first drug from this arlomycin class that has been found to work on these gram-negative, that these analogs like G0775 could potentially lead to new therapies and we should really start getting them into clinical trials to find out whether or not they will work. Yes, because I guess we've all realized it's inevitable that we're going to have superbugs because we can't stop over-prescribing antibiotics. I guess there's just no other way around it, right, TK? There was a study also that just came out last week suggesting that Prozac influences antibiotic resistance. Look, for yeah. the better or the worse? For the worse. Oh, no. It increases gene mutation rate in the bacteria and the efflux pumps in the membrane of the bacteria. It helps them pump the antibiotic out of their systems. God, we're cooking up superbugs in every high school in America right now. I know. <laughs> Between the Prozac and the grimy conditions and all the Z-packs they got floating around in there. There's so much. We should have a super weapon any day now. Oh, any day. That's right. Uh, tell me some good news. Do we have any good news in the stem cell world? Uh, yeah, we got some potential there. Let me start with the big, big story out of uh, nature. This just came out. Well, a bit of week old by the time you guys hear about it, but you'll hear about it. Believe me, you know, this is it's kind of a rehash of an old method, which I'll get to. But let's start with the problem. You know, there's senescence, you know, these senescent cells. Sometimes they're called zombie cells. Fixation with zombies in our culture these days is ridiculous. But uh, these senescent cells, they, they can't die but they're equally unable to perform the functions of a normal cell. And they're implicated in a lot of age-related diseases. And you can imagine why. you got cells that are just taking up space, not doing much good, doing bad sometimes. But this new letter in Nature, the Mayo Clinic researchers led by Darren Baker have expanded the list of age-related diseases that have senescence at their nexus so how they do this first, they use this mouse model of brain disease. They show that there's a causal link between, in this model, which models like a tau-dependent neurodegenerative disease, that's kind of like an Alzheimer's-type disease. They showed that there's a causal link between the accumulation of senescent cells and the cognition-associated neuronal loss. So when you get these senescent cells and those foci, you get some neuronal loss, which can lead to reduce cognition. And in this model, they showed that the, the senescent cell of origin there is astrocytes and microglia, okay? And these are really important mediators of neuronal health and signaling. So it would make sense that if they're just sitting around, you know, not doing their job, that they're probably impeding the job of others and leading to dysfunction. But here's where it gets interesting. They use this attack approach, so A-T-T-A-C, that's been used with all sorts of clever acronyms, bad attack, panic attack, all kinds of <laughs> really? acronyms that are essentially ways of exploiting the ATTAC stands for apoptosis through targeted activation of caspase. Okay, so what you do is you can get specific cells, if you can get this targeted activation of caspase, they'll kill themselves, right? 
So you link this to the specific protein that's only activated in senescent cells. And what happens is when they get senescent, you can add a drug and the caspase will have this cell intrinsic loss. And it's important and why it works so well is in the past, they've used thymidine kinase, some gancycler treatments that when the cell dies, it kind of blows up and has this inflammatory effect on the neighbors. This apoptosis causes senescent cells to die without any bystander effect. So it's really like just clearing away these zombie cells. And what did they find? Of course, clearance of senescent cells prevents gliosis, neurofibrillary tangle deposition, and degeneration of cortical and hippocampal neurons, thus preserving cognitive function. Boom, blowing your mind. In terms of the future work, Dr. Baker explains that the, he lays out the best case scenario where you can prevent a disease state by clearing these senescent cells. But as he says, clearly the same approach cannot be applied clinically because you can't genetically engineer humans to kind of apoptose, self-destruct the senescent cells. That's me paraphrasing, sorry, back to the quote. So we are starting to treat animals after disease establishment and working on new models to examine the specific molecular alterations that occur in the affected cells. So the idea there is that they can find another surrogate way of targeting the senescent cells in a way that doesn't have any bystander effect, clear the decks and reduce that cognitive dysfunction. And we'll all be, you know, living to 120. That's right. Or long. I know. Let's go to 120 with our brains intact. It's like it's you got to clear out the dust, right? Get the dust and detritus. It's like your house gets full of junk. You just keep putting things places, even though you don't use it anymore. And suddenly you're all cluttered all over the place. No, you got to have spring cleaning. Get rid of the old stuff so you have space for new, right? Wish yeah. I could do that in my brain right now. <laughs> right now. So much junk in there. <laughs> oh, boy. Some more junk. Let me divest myself of some more knowledge here. Okay. This is a study out of UNC Chapel Hill from Ben Vincent. Okay. It's a software, a smart approach for personalized leukemia treatments. This is cool. So... Bone marrow transplant can be leveraged. You can replace your whole hematopoietic system, or you can use it to like target cancer. We've talked about this, this T-cell effect. In fact, you can have in allogeneic bone marrow transplant, you can have T-cells from a donor that can attack the leukemia. It's called a graft versus leukemia effect. But you can also have the bad end of that is graft versus host disease, which is the number one problem with all bone marrow transplant, which is why you have to get the HLA matching and make sure the patients are near related and the match, et cetera. But in this case, if you're trying to exploit the system to try and kill leukemia, you can actually figure out which antigens on the cell are specific to leukemia and which are not. And in that way, you can kind of select or, or, or enrich four T cells that will only target the leukemia. And they target them by this idea, these antigens called minor histocompatibility antigens, MHAs. All right. And this new approach relies on this fact to try and target, well, really to predict and understand what those targets are. What they did is they used genetic sequencing data and HLA sequencing allele matching data from 101 patients to predict these MHAs that are likely to induce the graft versus leukemia instead of grass versus host. So they tried to figure out which of the MHAs that are only on the leukemia. And what they ultimately did using this software is they correctly identified 16 of 18 of these MHAs that are already known to be specific to leukemia. 
In addition, they predicted more than 100 new MHAs that might be specific to leukemia that can be exploited in this way, and then went on to verify one of these by showing that they could get a specific immunogenic response that would target these leukemia cells. So they've essentially figured out a way to, an in silico, so to speak, to predict based on sequencing data and HLA matching data, what new antigens might be useful for targeting. And uh, to quote Ben Vincent, uh, the next step of our work is to use that information for patient-specific therapies to try and improve cure rates without making graft versus host disease worse. And that's the key. If you can really target the leukemia and other cancers, by the way, using a similar type of approach, you can take this kind of brutality and barbarism out of chemo or out of cancer Mm -hmm. treatment and really make it a smart bomb, so to speak. Yeah. I mean, there's so many different kinds of cancers. They're just so very specific with their own antigens, like you mentioned. And yeah, if we could target as opposed to just, we're just going to kill all the cells in your body that are dividing. You know, <laughs> it's exactly. like, oh, okay. Storched earth. <laughs> Which is pretty much what we're doing right now. It's this cudgel. And if we could come in with a much more targeted approach, it would be amazing. I mean, it's great that they've got this in silico right now and they, you know, think that they can improve therapies. I want to see it work now. I want to see it, you know, let's get it into the clinics and actually see if it does make it better. I think we're close just because there's so many groups that are on this path in parallel. So we're really moving. We've done we've done a lot better on cancer than people realize, I think, and we're getting better. So high hopes for the Chapel Hill group and Ben Vincent. Yeah. Moving on, high hopes, high, high hopes. But I don't know if we can get our hopes high enough for this one. Let me elaborate. We're talking <laughs> about bringing rhinos back from the brink of extinction. Okay, so I'll catch you up from the middle. A second rhino has become pregnant this year through artificial insemination. San Diego Zoo Safari Park. This is where I'm like, wait, why are you talking about rhinos in the stem cell science part of Let me the tell rundown? You, What's Let going? Me tell you, I'm setting the stage. Okay. This is a pregnancy. It's artificial insemination. These rhinos aren't even threatened. It's 10-year-old Amani. Okay, it says she's got pregnant. She's a rhino. It's great. So what? It's another milestone. I'll tell you so what. It's another milestone for this ambitious program that's meant to rescue a rhino subspecies using stem cells. Okay, so there's just two northern white rhinos left in the world. What they just did the pregnancy Mm. for the southern white rhino and they're being like groomed, I guess. And maybe that's a distasteful way to put it. But in the article I'm reading, it's strange. They're trying to like get them accustomed to the intimate procedures, that's a quote, that are necessary for this whole process. Clearly, there's not a lot of assisted reproduction in rhinos. They're just really trying to figure it out. But again, going back, there's just two of these northern white rhinos left in the world, and they're both female, and they're too old to reproduce. So even if you had sperm, you couldn't inseminate it. And like I said, there's no male. So the subspecies is functionally extinct. NOLA northern white rhino at the safari park she died in uh 2015 she was one of only four left sudan the last male died in march now there's these two great so the idea here is that we're going to create embryos from tissue using human intervention they're meant to be not from cryopreserved gametes either which is why this is bugging me out and seems super ambitious the process that they're aiming for is to thaw frozen tissue 
that's going to be converted to IPS cells. They already did this. They're going to make IPS cells. Then they're going to turn those IPS cells. They haven't done this. They're going to turn them to germ cells, sperm, and egg. And then after fertilization of these embryos, which, you know, should be pretty easy once you get those sperm and egg cells, which, you know, should jump right out of you. I'm being sarcastic. In case uh, you didn't I'm like, is it, I mean, seriously, they've been trying to, we've been talking about this before, trying to produce gametes. Yes. No, I mean, this is like, they're trying to do this. They've done it in mouse. I in mean, mouse, I don't wanna, but not, not anything feasible. bigger and more no. complicated, not right? Even close, no. not even close. And like, I mean, that's just the beginning. Uh, we, you can get to how many problems there are with this, but and I don't want to detract. I think it's an ambitious effort. And the scientists, namely led by uh, Gene Loring, uh, who's a stem cell scientist at Scripps, they're very conservative, obviously. They're not saying they're going to be making babies anytime soon, but I think they're trying to explore this as a template for kind of conservationist efforts across the world. Because, of course, we all assume that we're going to drive everything to extinction. Why would we even try to conserve them? when we can just put them on ice and then clone them later. Anyway, they've got early signs of germ cell development, but I think it's a crazy long shot. Why do germ cells when you could just clone the stem cells? Why yes. not just create clones? Well, that, why not the cloning process? One, why not start with clones? Because yeah. you know what? Because you're talking about the idea that, I like you said, I think it'd be more likely that if you get that southern white rhino and get that oocyte, it'll be close enough species-wise to maybe do a nuclear transfer there. But really, either way, I think it's an uphill battle because you know how long a pregnancy lasts for these rhinos? 16 to 18 months, all right? These are not mice. The idea that we're gonna recapitulate results that we've seen in mice, I think are very far-fetched, but I love the effort. Congratulations to you. We need higher, higher hopes, I think, before this is gonna come along in five to 10 to 100 years. This Scripps Research Group, they're like the Elon Musk yes, exactly. <laughs> of reproductive science right now. Exactly. Moonshot. They're going to the moon. They're going to the moon. <laughs> but hey, you know, I want to be on that ride. So if right. they want to go to the moon, give me the recipe. Oh, my. I'll use it in human where it's much more practical. <laughs> and if you can get it working in rhinos, uh, I mean, that's a, it's a big, complex yeah. kind of pregnancy. I mean, next step, obviously, is humans. <laughs> Rhino hey, to humans. <laughs> we like to start with rhinos. Especially highly and critically endangered rhinos. Yeah. Exactly. Why not start with the moon? Oh, my God. Then we can make an electric car. All right. So last story. This is so cool and edgy. This is a gene therapy approach for cocaine addicts. And I don't want to minimize it. You know, cocaine is a hell of a drug. I don't know if you've seen that skit from the Chappelle show. It's hysterical. Yeah. If you haven't, go see it. But like cocaine is real. Almost a million Americans are dependent on or abuse cocaine. All right. There's no approved medications to treat either cocaine addiction or overdose. Users tend to become less and less sensitive to the drug, leads to stronger or more frequent doses. So they get addicted quick. And even being exposed to like, not just the drug, like, like seeing the drug, but even being exposed to the cues surrounding the drug, even after long periods of not using, it often leads to relapse. So it's an issue. In this recent issue of Nature Biomedical Engineering, UChicago team led by Ming Zhu and uh, Zhao Yang Wu, they described this novel approach that was able to stifle the desire for cocaine to protect against an overdose when tested in mice. All right, they, they did is they combine three different things. There's this enzyme, it's called 
butyrylcholinesterase, and it can degrade cocaine. But because it has a short half-life, if you inject this BCHE, let's call it, please, directly into the muscle tissue, it has a very limited effect. And so the first thing that this group did is to make long-lasting BCHE, the authors, they collected primary epidermal basal progenitor stem cells from newborn mice, right? And then they used CRISPR to deliver engineered human BCHE into these cells. So they're pumping out BCHE on a constitutive basis. Then they use this another novel technique for creating uh, skin organoids and transplanting them back into donor animals where they acted as a depot for really robust, long-lasting expression and secretion of this human BCHE into the bloodstream. And this effectively protected the mice from cocaine, period. Protected them from cocaine-seeking, cocaine-induced relapse, even presented death when they gave them these lethal boluses, a hot wow. speedball of cocaine. They just shrugged it off like Belushi. <laughs> But the stem cells, and this is the other thing, the stem cells were tolerated by the injected mice. Grafted skin cells, they like exhibited normal epidermal stratification, proliferation, cell death. And the mice who received the skin draft were able to remove cocaine from the bloodstream much faster than normal mice. They were less likely than untreated mice to enter environments previously associated with cocaine use. But when they were exposed to booze, they were, <laughs> I love this test. When they were like essentially immune to co co cocaine, they were like, well, let's give them alcohol as a control. And they retained, quote, a learned fondness for that drug. So it was specific to cocaine and not, yes. yeah, not broadly. Yeah. These, uh, let's, these were party mice. Okay, <laughs> let's just call it what it is. So, you know, just to put into perspective, these skin transplantation protocols, they've been clinically used for decades in the treatment of burn wounds, you know, skin grass also for vitiligo or other skin genetic disorders. So this is viable. And these graphs, in this case, they're stable. They showed long-term survival. And the expression of this BCHE in host mice was stable for more than 10 weeks without any decrease. So it suggests that the skin environment may limit a, an immune reaction to the human protein in this case, which would be moot in autologous transfer. But the point is, is that these mice are old now, 12 months, healthy, and they're still can't get them addicted to cocaine after all that. So <laughs> they can't I mean, get them to die from cocaine. That's great. They just can't. You know, they can't. It's like a cell-based approach here that I think is used in an interesting way and can yeah. be expanded to treat not just cocaine abuse or relapse, making them essentially immune to the joys of the drug. But you can use a similar approach for alcohol, nicotine, or opioid abuse our abuse of multiple of those drugs. So this is a nice stem cell therapy entering the social sphere, uh, making things possible. Yeah, I mean, just in the creativity of the various new technologies being put together to come up with this new therapeutic idea, I think it's brilliant. I mean, the fact that it's not mouse cells, right, for people, but we could take your own human, your autologous cells, right, CRISPRize them with this particular gene, this enzyme, production process and then skin graft you, right? Oh, we're just going to put that right on there. It's not a Band-Aid. It's not a plasticine implant of any kind. It's my Coke sponge. It's my Coke sponge, right? It soaks <laughs> it up, but just take care of it. You know, and I'm just imagining, you know, how wonderful an impact this could potentially have. Oh, man, forget it. Because that's the whole, you know, I've known people who've been drug abusers 
and they don't like being addicted. Nope. They yeah. don't, they're really yeah. unhappy. I mean, they're just uh, all they want. If you could, if you could say here, I will take away the high so that this is the other thing say, do it. Or, I mean, drugs like methamphetamine, the opioid crisis is huge, but there's also a massive problem with methamphetamine addiction across the United States. And that as well, if there's a, an enzyme that could break that down. Oh, and there is, oh Kiki. Every gosh. chemical has a, something that can metabolize oh. it. So it's big. Yeah. Just say no. Just say yes. Doesn't just, matter. Just say, <laughs> put a little skin patch on it. Just put that right there. Just put it right put there. Put a patch on it. Put a patch on it. There we go. Patch us all up. Oh, have we done it for the interview? Yeah, we're all patched. We're ready. We're patched for the roundup, ready for the interview. But before we jump into that, Dalen, have you ever wondered what makes organoids good model systems? Yes, I often wonder that. Do you ask yourself, how could I use organoids in my research? Yeah. Or what sorts of insights could I get from them? Every day. Right, all the time. What about questions on mitigating variability or other technical considerations for growing organoids? Oh, I haven't had that one, but it's a good question. A good question. Well, stem cells organoid experts answer these questions and more during a panel discussion on organoids. Topics include evaluating organoids as tissue and disease models, variability in organoid cultures, and future outlooks in translational and clinical applications. Watch now at stemcell.com slash organoid dash panel at stemcell.com slash organoid dash panel. I joke about the organoids, but you should watch this panel. It's actually very informative and everybody's, it's one of those things where like, you're going to be the last person not doing organoids. So just <laughs> get on it. Don't be the last person. Know how the organoids can help you. This panel can help you understand that. All right. So now our interview. Our guest today is Dr. Louis Vermeulen. Dr. Vermeulen is a professor of molecular oncology at the Academic Medical Center in Amsterdam and a New York Stem Cell Foundation Robertson Stem Cell Investigator. His research focuses on colorectal carcinoma and identifying various subtypes of this disease, which is important for the development of new medicines. In addition, he studies stem cell dynamics in the healthy bowel and examines how these cells develop into intestinal cancers. And here to talk about his work and latest publication, Dr. Vermeulen. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. It's wonderful to get to speak to you. It's, we are all on different sides of various continents at the moment, so I love technology being able to bring us all together. Can you give us a little introduction of yourself and uh, more about your research interests, how you came to work in what you're doing currently? So I'm a physician uh, scientist. I'm uh, currently still in training to become an oncologist. And at the same time, I combine that with uh, running a laboratory where we study uh, mainly, as you mentioned, colorectal cancer. And in a large proportion of the projects that we run, we do this from a, a stem cell point of view. And that also uh, yeah, sparked the interest in the stem cell dynamics in the normal intestine, and in particular, how normal stem cells change their behavior and become yeah, malignant-like stem cells. Lewis, before we get into all that, which is your work and how you're going to address that, can you just give us an idea of the scope of colorectal cancer, I mean, worldwide, what the demographic, perhaps, who it affects, and, you know, prognosis, et cetera? Yeah, absolutely. 
colorectal cancer is, is in the top three of uh, most common uh, malignancies. It's mainly common in the Western world, but also like developing countries are more and more affected by it. In many Western societies, we now have screening programs, which makes it an even more frequent disease. So we encounter it a lot in the clinic. And the prognosis depends a great deal on the stage at which it is detected at very early disease when it's only confined to the bowel. Surgery alone can virtually cure up to 90% of the patients. Although when it has spread to the lymph nodes or even to other uh, distant organs, then the prognosis rapidly declines. And for stage four disease, so with hematological spread, yeah, the survival rates are very poor and only 10, 20% of the people survive beyond five years. What is the gene versus environment aspect of this? If you have genetic mutation, how much leads to this kind of cancer versus, you know, your diet, lifestyle, et cetera? Well, it's a hotly debated topic and probably it's a combination of both. It's a bit of the, the boring answer, but probably also the right answer. And in contrast to, for example, lung cancer, where there is a very clear environmentally yeah, defined factor that contributes to the development of lung cancer, for colon cancer, there are uh, several associations that associate with an increased risk of developing bowel cancer, for example, yeah, male sex and obesity and a diet of involving uh, lots of meat. But all those associations are much poorer than those found for the connection between uh, lung cancer and smoking. There is an environmentally defined factor there, but in essence, it just uh, boils down to bad luck. So yeah, bad luck. And you mentioned that if you catch it in the first stage when it's confined to the intestine, it's treatable. But is there typically do patients present outside of these screening programs? Is there any reason that you would come in with the primary tumor that's confined to the intestine? Or are these often go unnoticed? And so you when they come to you, most of the time they're already in the risky stage. Yeah, absolutely. It often goes unnoticed, and that's precisely the reason why those screening programs have been started. So a common reason to identify patients with a bowel cancer is, for example, when they have anemia and they have an iron deficiency and they, for the, the years preceding that, they have just lost small amounts of blood. And that can be a, a common reason to screen, for example, in those individuals for a bowel cancer. But indeed, when it's confined to the intestine, the symptoms can be very moderate and can be ranging from changes in stool frequency, for example, or abdominal pains. But those are relatively aspecific uh, features uh, that we all experience uh, once in a while. That makes it also difficult to diagnose. So I'm just thinking, you know, as a woman, iron deficiency is something that's very common. So that in itself wouldn't necessarily be indicative. Are there other things like, you know, IBS, the irritable bowel syndrome, Crohn's disease, these disorders of the gut, are they linked in any way to tumor formation? When I spoke about iron deficiency, of course, that's also an important thing to mention is that, that colorectal cancer is a disease of the elderly, mainly. So younger women with iron deficiency, there are other reasons why they have that in a very largest proportion of cases. The other diseases that you mentioned, for example, uh, colitis and inflammatory bowel diseases, they are associated with an increased risk of developing a colon cancer. Although uh, nowadays the treatments in, in, for those diseases have yeah, very much improved and also are accompanied by a reduced risk then of developing uh, colon cancer. 
And when the when the inflammation is suppressed, also the, the chances that inflamed tissue will develop into a colorectal cancer is uh, reduced. So I think that is also contributing to benefit of those uh, novel drugs that, uh, that are developed in that area. So that's a, a bit of a nice segue, I guess, into your current story, which focuses on microenvironment. I know you're not talking about inflammation specifically, but it is a components of the microenvironment that is specifically acting on the border zone cells in these uh, tumor uh, graphs that you're doing. Can you just color in there? You know, I didn't do the description justice. I'm sure all the listeners are very confused right now, but maybe you can kind of elaborate on this recent study you had focusing on the influence of the microenvironment on the growth of these cancers and cancer stem cells. Why we started this project and why we started off with this was mainly to identify cancer stem cells and try to understand the dynamics of cancer stem cells, because it was believed that like normal organs also in, in cancers that are in many respects like caricatures of, uh, of normal tissues, that there are stem cells that fuel actually the expansion of the tumors. And many of those uh, earlier studies to which I contributed myself used tissue dissociation and the transplantation of cell mixtures, of single cell uh, mixtures uh, that were then uh, tested for the ability to initiate new tumors. But of course, as you might appreciate, such an assay doesn't say much about the possibility that cells contribute to the expansion of a cancer. And therefore we devised uh, a system where which we were able to actually track the fate of cells within the tissue. And when we did that, we clearly saw that it is not a unique population that is driving the expansion of the tumor, but actually all cells can drive the expansion of the cancers. And it is dependent on the location of the cells, which cells actually function as stem cells. And as a follow-up on that discovery, we also try to identify factors that then contribute to the stem cell functionality. And that then directly linked back to the environment where we identified a few factors that are produced by cells in the surrounding of the cancer cells that promote clonogenicity and expansion of the cancer and therefore are probably yeah, important in, in shaping the growth of those malignancies. Well, just so as a follow-up, this kind of mutability, I guess, that you're alluding to in these cells, is that a blow to the whole cancer stem cell? hypothesis or the cancer stem cell as a focus for targeting? Or does it mean that maybe a, a non-cancer stem cell can then become a cancer stem cell if it shifts into the right environment? Yeah, I'm not sure if it's, if it's a blow already uh, quite some years ago. I also contributed to studies that showed that indeed, if you push more differentiated uh, cancer cells hard enough, you can turn them into stem cells. The question was only how frequently does this occur? Is it something that can occur, but is rare? Or is it something that is uh, critical to the biology of a cancer? And it turns out it is, uh, it is indeed the, uh, the latter. And when we know that, then of course it, it makes probably less sense to specifically target the cancer stem cell population. Because if you do that on day one, a few days later, the more differentiated cells will actually have turned into stem cells because they take up the vacant niche of the stem cells and are able to drive the growth of the malignancy. On the other hand, it's not a blow to the cancer stem cell concept, because I think we have learned a great deal about the biology of cancers by viewing it from the view and the perspective of stem cells. And the single transduction routes that are involved in, in stem cell maintenance are also the ones that are key to cancer development and progression. 
So I think it just refines our image of the cancer stem cell model, but I wouldn't judge it as a blow. Where are these tumors usually found is in the epithelial layers of the intestine, like in the colon. What layer? Where are they found and how do they really start their process and get growing? Yeah, so if you zoom in on the intestinal wall, it is a, a monolayer of epithelial cells that display invaginations in the colon that, that are uh, defined as uh, crypts. And only in the small intestine, you also have yeah, finger-like protrusion that are uh, referred to as uh, villi. But most of the cancers, they develop in the, in the colon and they stem from the transformation of the epithelial cells. And in the very early phases of cancer development, when it's a polyp or an adenoma, you can still see the really nice yeah, glandular structures that you also see in the normal intestine. But as per the definition of a cancer, at some point it becomes invasive, goes, grows through tissue boundaries, and then that morphology is lost. But still then, it's, um, cancers are still a mixture of epithelial cells that have acquired the mutations and the environmental cells that support them, and, uh, and as, as we know now, also are very critical for their uh, development. Since this is epithelia that we're talking about, what are the similarities between skin cancers that occur in the epithelial on the exterior of your body versus this internal epithelia? There are plenty. It, it all depends on the level at which you look at it. But I think the fundamental dynamics of transformation and the fundamental dynamics of the role of stem cells in all those organs, I think, is pretty similar. And I think this de-differentiation of differentiated cells into more functional stem cells is something that we see in more and more tissues and also in more and more malignancies in breast cancer, in skin indeed, but also in lung and uh, prostate and uh, pancreatic cancer. So I think that insight is something uh, uh, universal and other scientists have yeah, contributed to that notion uh, a great deal also in those organs. So, yeah, I think, you know, following up on Kiki's question right before there about the origin of the, these cancer stem cells, I know you also focus on what the intestinal epithelia do in like normal physiology. Is there preservation of this mechanism? Does this osteopontin microenvironment thing have a role in normal physiology of the intestine of the stem cells within CRIPS, for example? Yeah, this is unclear, but it's interesting that you mention it because it's something that we are, are currently looking into indeed. It is probably in the normal intestine, as far as we can say now, most likely a bystander because in very elegant studies from the Clavers lab, for example, it, it has been shown that, that there are only a few factors that you really need to uh, be able to culture a mini gut and osteopontin is not one of them. So it could be that it's a um, fine tuning the behavior of the stem cells in the intestine or it might be that it's redundant with another factor in the normal intestine, and that only in particular cases of, of colon cancer, it is so critical for maintaining stem cellness. And I think there are other factors from the environment that can do the same, and that it is probably a personalized medicine, that, that it's our task probably as, as doctors at some point to try and identify which factors in which patients are critical in maintaining this, uh, this stem cell functionality and try to block those and also to sensitize them to, uh, to therapies. And so this begs the question of osteopontin as a target for drug therapy, for, you know, a chemotherapy type approach. We are developing a novel therapeutics to inhibit the activity of osteopontin. It is a bit of a, a promiscuous uh, factor that binds to uh, quite a bit of uh, receptors and cell surface uh, molecules, which makes it more difficult to target. 
but we have um, a probably a range of epitopes in the osteopontin that we need to inhibit to inhibit the interaction with specific uh, cell surface uh, molecules. And we're currently working on identifying uh, which of those we are actually, we should be targeting to hit the tumors the hardest. So yeah, I guess you kind of touched on it there and we're talking about application of this. Do you know what the degree to which this mechanism is shared across colon cancers or, you know, subtypes? Yeah. Is it ubiquitous? There's always this border zone phenomenon. I presume you looked at multiple different primary cancer lines. Of course, we we looked at multiple different uh, cancer lines to validate this mechanism. But it seems that there is a a difference in the molecular subtypes to which degree the osteopontin is important and which cells actually produce the osteopontin. While in the more typical epithelial-like colon cancers, it seems to be predominantly produced by the environment in uh, more mesenchymal colon cancers, which are characterized by lots of stroma and a poor disease outcome. It turns out that also the cancer cells themselves produce osteopontin, and that actually uh, might render them more independent of the environment. And that could explain to some degree their prognosis and probably makes it even more interesting to target this molecule to try and, uh, and improve the prognosis of those patients. As you mentioned, personalized medicine here, being able to figure out what the source of the osteopontin is, being able to figure out what markers on the cell's surface you're actually going to be targeting to be able to disrupt that signaling cascade. But it seems like there are a lot of factors that would be involved in the identification process. Is that correct? Yeah, I think that is correct. And I think what we also learned from this work, but also previous work, is that there are many factors that can do the trick. And that there are many factors probably that are produced in the environment that, that can drive uh, stem cell functionality. And if you inhibit one, it needs to be seen if that is sufficient to actually prevent those cells from going into a stem cell state and driving the expansion. What we can also envision, of course, is to try and develop new drugs that interfere with the intracellular machinery that is associated with this stem cell state and the stem cell functionality. And I think that um, that is also an attractive possibility to try and and develop new therapeutics. So I just want to take a step back here. I know that you would probably agree with me. A lot of this work wouldn't have been possible without the support of the New York Stem Cell Foundation. I'm a former alumnus there. I was one of the Druckenmiller fellows, so I have a a special affinity for the foundation. Talk to me about, because I know you have a different apparatus, subtly different apparatus over there in Europe, different from the U.S. NIH system, at least. And uh, what is the role of the private foundation funding in this kind of research? How essential is it? Do you think it's like a major driver? Maybe it's difficult for you to compare it because people say in the U.S., they say, oh, philanthropic money is just a drop in the bucket. The real, you know, NIH is everything. Is it similar Mm -hmm. in Europe or is foundation money a significant proportion of yours or most lab budgets? I would think that Philanthropic money and, and foundation money is much rarer, I think, in um, Europe than it is in the U.S. Of course, we have huge governmental uh, organization that distributes uh, money for science. And we have the ERC, which is a European organization that distributes uh, money for science. And on the other hand, we have usually disease-specific organizations like the Dutch Cancer Society, for example, that collects money from the public and then distributes that among scientists that investigate in this case, cancer, but we have similar things for um, heart diseases or for kidney diseases. 
and it is, I would say, yeah, maybe 50% of the uh, funding, what we do not have in Europe. And I think in that respect, also the New Extensile Foundation is, is unique, that there are individuals that put actually a large proportion of their fortune into uh, science and in the fostering of yeah, new scientific developments and uh, scientific institutes and also make it possible for early career scientists, for example, to be quite free in the uh, roots of science that they take. That is something we don't have so much, at least on the continent in, uh, in Europe. A bit more in, uh, in the UK, I guess, but in the US it's even more. And also I think the New Extensile Foundation is, uh, is a, a great example of that. I'm going to move us back to the gut. Now that we've had this money conversation, <laughs> move us back to the gut. Now that we're done with our commercial no. for the NYSEF, sponsored by NYSEF. No. <laughs> A lot of work recently has been indicating that the microbial population within the gut is very important to gut health. I've been seeing studies recently that viruses are being transmitted across the intestinal membrane, the epithelia, that factors transmitted by bacteria. Bacteria themselves are moving across that epithelia. So do we know, do we have any concept of how these microbial produced factors and influences may be affecting these stem cell populations? Well, it's, it's not ex exactly my area of research, so I cannot speak with any authority here. But of course, I follow it with great interest and it's an exciting field. I know that the microbiome is greatly important, especially inflammatory bowel diseases, but of course also in, in, in cancer development. And there are elegant studies showing that chemotherapy sensitivity is mediated by actually which barks are present in your gut, believe it or not. So it is something that is opening our eyes to a completely new dimension of a lot of the problems that we, that we study. Clearly, because the intestinal stem cells are so closely, geographically so closely in contact with the microbiome, it will have an impact. And they produce factors, butyrate and other factors that impact on the dynamics of the stem cells. If it's purely the composition of the microbiome or also the impact of the diet that then shapes the microbiome and at the same time also affects the stem cells, lots of those associations need to be worked out. And if it's an association or a correlation, doesn't of course mean it's, it's functional and studies to entangle that are around the world ongoing. And I expect in the coming years that we get so much more insight in, in, into that. Well, I think, you know, Kiki brought us back and you started off talking about the demographic, mostly Western lifestyle, maybe you could argue disease here. What's your gut tell you? Sorry to use that terrible pun, but like, what do you think the trajectory? I'm pessimistic about worldwide health. Do you think we're getting better with our guts in the future? You think you're going to have plenty of research material as we move forward? There are two sides to this. I think the more and more we learn about the development of cancer in the intestine, the more and more we can actually do to prevent it. And prevention of cancer is, I think, the holy grail. And I work mainly on the the trying to cure cancer, but if we can replace that by preventing cancer, I'm um, uh, <laughs> more than happy to do so. Only thing is that, and especially in the intestine, as I said in one of the earlier questions, it's bad luck to a degree. And the fact that the gut needs to turn over so frequently and that there is such a massive amount of cell divisions required, and all those cell divisions are associated with a slim chance of developing mutations in critical genes, that we cannot simply prevent that by changing our lifestyle. That doesn't mean that, of course, on top of that, there are factors that, that might increase the risk of developing colon cancer. 
in that respect, I'm a bit pessimistic. And I think that people will all, when they live long enough, they will at some point suffer from bowel cancer. We cannot prevent that, I think. And at that stage, what we can do is detect it early, that therefore we have those screening programs. And when we detect it early, we can actually cure the patient. And at some point, if some uh, patient slips between the, the nets, we need to uh, be able to cure it most effectively, or at least make sure that the patient doesn't die from the disease and may live a happy life with the disease. And I think there is so much more work to achieve that. I think we're at this point in modern medicine where we are talking more and more often about living longer quality lives so that that end of life senescent period where things are breaking down and everything's miserable is much shorter. It's a, it's a shorter period of your life. And I'm just imagining from your thoughts here, just kind of extrapolating, you know, this future where we're living to 120, uh, you know, on a regular basis. But everybody's going to get colon cancer if we haven't prevented it, you know. So, <laughs> oh, I'm just going in. Planet of cancer. I'm just going in for my colon cancer surgery, you know, which is normal. Everybody gets it. Well, wouldn't that be a good outcome? Where we all live with That's cancer. That's right. It could be worse. Yeah. We could all be dead. All right, Ray Kurzweil, you can live forever. You're going to get your colon cancer. That's it. <laughs> Yeah, that's just it's just uh, a phase you have to go through. (laughs) Growing pains. Oh, boy. Well, I think, you know, we've also reached a point in our interview, Keeks. And uh, I don't know uh, what we're going to do today. What do you think? What should we ask? We usually do a uh, a final one of three questions, Dr. Pramul. So I don't know. Should we give him a choice or why don't you make the choice, Keeks? I am going to ask, because we have not asked this question in a while, Dr. Vermeulen, if you had not chosen science as a career, what else would you have done and why? I think which I'm also a a doctor, right? So then I would have been a medic. I have to say that I find it hard to imagine that to separate the medicine from the science. So I'm not sure if that satisfies you enough. But a farmer, that's what I wanted to be when I was very young. And uh, so I think I would be a farmer. Well, you're certainly taking care of people as a farmer, too. Can you elaborate? What was it about farming? Is it just you grew up in a countryside with beautiful produce around you? Or is that it's such a my kids always say construction worker because we live in the city. Is it do you think farmer when you're a kid growing up in Europe because you're around the, the farms? I was raised brought up in, in quite a, a rural part of the Netherlands. So uh, there were plenty of farms there. So maybe that, uh, that played a role indeed. I think I just like the um, the idea of, uh, which is, of course, completely unrealistic, that you have a, a few cows and a few horses and a, a few pigs, and then you grow a few potatoes on that field and a few plants of uh, corn on the other field, which is, of course, not the reality. I would just um, attribute it to childish um, naivety that I wanted to be, uh, mm-hmm. be a farmer. And I'm very happy with the choice that I made to become a scientist. I am glad that you're a scientist and and a doctor and working toward improving our health, helping to make sure that when we do get that colon cancer. Thank you so much for joining us today. It's been really wonderful speaking with you. My pleasure and um, have a good day. Thank you. So everyone out there, thank you so much for joining us and listening to this episode of the Stem Cell Podcast. Be sure to send us your thoughts and your questions on Twitter at Stem Cell Podcast or email info at stemcellpodcast.com. Don't forget to take our survey at stemcellpodcast.com and be sure to tune in for our next episode. 
Dalen, Dr. Vermeulen. This concludes episode 126 of the Stem Cell Podcast. Thank you for another great show.